Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons from Sports and Beyond. My name is Simon Mundy and let me just start with a heads up. This is a bit of a different episode than normal. I would suggest it's from the Beyond part of the title. It's not going to be for everyone. It's somewhat akin to the episode I recorded with Rupert Spira. So if you enjoyed that one, this throws up similarly philosophical questions. If it's not for you, no worries. After discussing asking for help with Olympic legend Sally Gunnell last week, next week it'll be back to business as usual with ex-Arsenal and England footballer Paul Merson. But this week's guest is Sam Harris, neuroscientist, philosopher, New York Times bestselling author, host of the Making Sense podcast and creator of the Waking Up app. And here's a question to start. Do you believe the voice in your head is who you are? Now, Sam argues that the vast majority of us believe that there is a thinker in our heads in addition to thoughts themselves. He says this is an illusion. And if we're able to see through it, we can largely bring an end to our own psychological suffering. Thoughts simply arise in consciousness on their own, Sam says, and recognising that is immensely liberating. Anyway, we do relate this to sport at the start before what is a deep dive into the self, questions of identity and the nature of consciousness itself, as well as why it matters. This is the sort of episode that requires focused attention. So do grab yourself a brew, sit back and enjoy. In the first half, Sam really sets out his stool. Then I go and challenge him really in the second half. So do hang on in there. But without further ado, here is Sam Harris talking about the self delusion. Sam Harris, how are you? I'm great. Great. Nice to meet you, Simon. And you. Uh, Sam, I've got to say, I'm really, really excited to have you on. And if you're going to, if you wouldn't mind just uh, 
indulging me with allow or allowing me to engage in a little light flattery just <laughs> from the outset. Uh, I've really followed your work for about a decade, I would say, closely. Initially, when you were in real close uh, cohorts with Christopher Hitchens, uh, mm-hmm. I used to love watching Hitch Slaps and the debates that you and he had arguing specifically with people from organized religion. Then actually around sort of 2013, my outlook changed. And lo and behold, you wrote a book that seemed to sort of fit in with that, which is uh, which is your book about spirituality, Waking Up, which we'll talk about. Then obviously there's the Making Sense podcast, which is a non-negotiable in my library. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, to me, the next level meditators app, Waking Up. So uh, needless to say, Sam, I'm a fan. Mm, no, well, happy to hear it. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, have found it all useful. Something that I really admire about you, and a lot of people do, is that you do catch a lot of flack from left and right. A lot mm. of people would say that that's a sign that you're doing something right. And I want to dig into the implications of that, for example, with identity, um, as well as talking about the illusory self, free will, meditation, and suffering. But where I want to actually start is with uh, jujitsu. Because I know, mm-hmm. obviously, that's your sport of choice, as it were. And I wondered how you got into it, what are the benefits, and to what degree is it a metaphor for life, as far as you're concerned? Well, in some ways, it's a metaphor for how life should be, and certainly how intellectual life should be, because uh, jujitsu is one of those uh, rare martial arts where, where within its purview... There's really nothing left to chance, and there's there's no ability to bullshit yourself. I mean, there's nothing. So, so most I don't know how much you know about martial arts, but you know, certainly most martial arts, uh, you know, most, certainly most striking based martial arts that are not sports, you know, martial arts that are marketed as as self defense mm. platforms, they leave a, a lot to the imagination. I mean, you, what you get trained in. Is a kind of pantomime of violence, so you can really just you can just fool yourself for the longest time, and you know, hopefully there's no great consequence to that because you you'll manage to avoid violence your whole life. But in many scenarios, it's you know, the people are are in for a rude awakening, and one rude awakening is to get on the mat with a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and you know try to survive within the within the purview of that art, which is essentially wrestling and, uh, you know, submissions, you know, leg locks, arm locks, chokes, things that, that, uh, you know, bring, bring the fight to the end without striking. So on the mat, wrestling with somebody who's great at jujitsu, you, you quickly discover that the difference between knowing what to do and, and not knowing what to do is total. And there really is no possibility of getting lucky, right? It's, it's not like you have the, the puncher's chance who, you, you know, who, you, if you get just happen to hit a, a professional boxer hard in the face, you know, who knows, you might knock him out. But it, with grappling, there really is just no scope, scope for luck. I mean, you just, you will lose a hundred times out of a hundred to someone who is fundamentally better than you. You learn in, in, in increments of, you know, maybe 20 minutes how you were fatally ignorant of something. I mean, so somebody literally kills you, you know, or it comes to the point where they could kill you and there's nothing you could do about it. I mean, someone is is choking you and you tap out. 
uh, and then you're resurrected and you, you, you learn, you know, how that happened to you, how to stop it from happening to you and how to do it to somebody else. And so there's this cycle of kind of catastrophe and reward that is, is utterly addictive. Now, um, I mentioned your waking up app and obviously it's, it's a first and foremost, um, a meditation app, but, but meditation app with a difference in that it's set up to point in the direction of what meditation was, you could argue initially set out to do. So with that in mind, when you talk about spirituality and your definition of it being seeing through the illusory self, which I want to dig into. But how, mm -hmm. how could, if you were a sports psychologist, how could you bring that to the table to help someone compete in jujitsu? Do you think it could be applied in a sporting sphere like that? Well, jujitsu is this amazingly ego nullifying experience. I mean, what you are confronted with again and again and again and again is the superior talent of those who are better than you hmm. and how that is absolutely decisive. It's encouraging of a humility. There are other aspects to, to cutting through the illusion of the self. I mean, the deeper, deeper ones than this, but there really is a, um, an encounter with, with your ignorance that gets repeated again and again and again, no matter how much you, you learn. And it's, um, it's, it's it's immensely clarifying. So if you have an inflated sense of self, jujitsu is a, a, a good uh, path to head down. Uh, before we talk about the, the self uh, and what it is and what it isn't, could you start by explaining really what the point of actual meditation is? And because obviously there's this perception, isn't there, that it's there to, to just simply to calm us down, to allow us to, you know, go into uh, rest and digest, but actually it's deeper than that. Yeah, there are different levels at which to engage it. And, and so one, one can have different purposes in, certainly in the beginning. Um, and so, you know, I, I would think most of the people who take it up have um, a, a general sense that they're, they're not as happy as they might be they're they're more stressed out than they want to be. Uh, they you know they 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 feel that they have a lack of focus on a you know moment to moment moment to moment basis, and meditation is is often offered to them in that context as a, a kind of remedy. You know this you, this will make you feel better on some level, and that's true. I mean that that's can certainly be borne out by practice. Uh, I mean, it can be frustrating in the beginning because what you, what you immediately come up against is just how distracted and distractible you are. You're spending all of your time having a conversation with yourself that you haven't really inspected before. So when you're asked to meditate, to pay attention to the breath or anything else, you you immediately f find this this opposition between your your intended focus and your natural uh, proclivity for being lost in whatever next thought presents itself uh, in consciousness. So, you know, you try to pay attention to the breath and then five minutes later you wake up realizing that you've just been thinking about your job or about your marriage or about something you saw on television for the last five minutes. And then, then, you know, again, you're, you're, this it's like jujitsu in that sense, you're, you're continually humbled by how out of control your mind is and how difficult it is to control it. But so many people adopt this project 
without any deeper aspirations than that, there's not a, a deep, deeper contemplative or spiritual goal that they've set themselves. Right? Med meditation, you know, the Buddha 2,500 years ago did not recommend medita meditation merely as a way to de-stress or to add a um, get more focused, a, yeah, a capacity yeah. for your you know, to your your you know CEO toolkit. <laughs> It's not. It's not really a self improvement program. It is a a self understanding program, which ultimately terminates in your cutting through this illusion that you call yourself. And and this there can be many misunderstandings here because we can mean many things by the term self. So I'll clarify that. But as you get deeper into it, you discover that really it's it's always about the difference between suffering and the end of suffering and the you know the punchline for that is that we suffer because we are identified with our thoughts and and that that is what it is to feel like a self uh, and most people feel like there's a subject in the middle of experience we feel like we're passengers in our bodies you know up in our heads in, in in some strange relationship to our own bodies and even to parts of our own minds. I mean, we're having a conversation with ourselves as though we're not the one, we're not, we're not on both sides of the conversation. I mean, you, you will, if you take the, uh, if you look at the, the structure of so much of your thinking, it is conversational in a way that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you, you will say something to yourself as though you weren't the one to say it, right? And as though there's someone else in you who needed to hear it. And I mean, just a sim simple example, you know, if I, if I, you know, in setting up for this podcast, if I'm looking for something on the desk, you know, let's say I'm looking for a pen and I might, when, upon spying the pen, I might actually think the thought, oh, there it is, mm. right? Now, who am I telling? I am the one to see the pen, right? So there's a, there's a, a false structure in, in here, which is peculiar at least, and it's all predicated on this sense that there's a thinker in addition to thoughts themselves and and that there's a a seer in addition to the experience of seeing uh and there's this there is just this subject object dichotomy in in seemingly every act of attention and perception and c cognition um and the more you inspect that I mean, med meditation ultimately is a the means by which you would pay more and more attention to that and discover that it, it is in fact an illusion. And that discovery is immensely freeing, right? It, it, it is the thing that unlocks a kind of tranquility that you would otherwise seek to produce. I mean, it's, it's something that you, you may in fact, if you could experience it all of a sudden and then lose it, you, you know, you want to get back there and People then try to get back there by meditating or taking psychedelics or you know, using other methods, doing yoga. But it's not best thought of as a peak experience. It's actually something that is intrinsic to the nature of awareness in each moment, and, and that can be recognized directly. And so the, the most sophisticated practices of meditation are really not practices at all. They're, they're ways of having this insight into what is intrinsic to the nature of consciousness in each moment and simply recognizing that again and again as a as a 
you know, a, a practice, but it's really not. It's really is just what what it's like to no longer be distracted by thought in each moment. So many thoughts popped up while you were saying mm-hmm. all that. Uh, you, you've said having an ego is what it feels like to be thinking without knowing your thinking. As you mm-hmm. know, I've I spoke to Rupert Spira and I thoroughly enjoyed your conversation with him on your <clears> app, <throat> and he spoke about the separate self. And a lot of people were somewhat confused by that, just the very idea of a separate self. Um, and another name for it could be the the ego. And you said as well, then, there isn't a thinker of the thoughts separate to the thoughts themselves. So if someone listening was to say, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. I can think up, I don't know, like a carrot. I can think mm. up an image of a carrot right now. That's me thinking it. What would your riposte be to someone who's, who's questioning this idea that they are not actually the thinker of their thoughts. So we have an experience of self uh, and there, there are many facets to it, but the, the specific experience that uh, I'm calling illusory is the sense that you are a subject uh, in your head, you know, a locus of, of attention and cognition in the head that can strategically pay attention to the breath, say, you know, you're told to meditate. And I say, okay, well, you, you, the, the practice you're going to do now is you're going to pay attention to each breath as it comes and goes through your nostrils or, or the rising and falling of your chest. And you try to do that. You're now focusing on the sensation of breathing and you feel like you're you in your head, the source of attention, aiming attention now at part of your body. And so this suggests a kind of duality where you don't feel identical to your body. You rather, you feel like you have a body and you're up in the head, a kind of passenger, but it is, when inspected, it's a false point of view from the first person side, subjectively. And you can see this, I mean, so here, here's a, lo- a logical way to, to appreciate that this might be so. You know, if your experience of being a self is in fact experienced on any level, right? And it, and it is because you you know you you if you're doubting whether the, the, what I'm saying makes any sense, you you're doubting it by comparison with how you feel. You know, you feel like what what's he talking about? I'm right here. I can think my thoughts. I, I just thought this one. You know, and this is me in here. If if that is experienced in any way, if that feels like anything, all of that that whole constellation of experience has to be arising in consciousness. It has to be consciously experienced on some level. But by that very measure, consciousness cannot be merely identical to it. I mean, it, it must be prior to, it must be the prior condition of its appearing. It just as anything else you can notice is an object for consciousness. So that the sound of my voice, I mean, because you can hear it, you know you you as consciousness are not identical to it. And so it is with your own hand. You look down at your hand. It's an object for you. Uh, it's, arise, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's arising as a constellation of sensations and appearances, you know, visual and, and tactile in consciousness at this moment. Consciousness is the prior condition of its appearance. Well, what you're calling self, if it has any signature at all, if it's there to be noticed at all, it's appearing in this prior condition, which can't which can't be merely reducible to it or confined by.
justify it. If you do keep dropping back into the point of view of, of merely recognizing that, that awareness is the space in which everything's appearing and everything includes thoughts and this feeling of, of being a subject, you can begin to notice that, that consciousness itself doesn't actually feel identical to any of those things. Ultimately, you recognize that there's simply consciousness and its contents. All you experience is this open condition in which things arise all on their own. And, the th and among those things are your thoughts and intentions and counter-intentions and counter-thoughts, right? So you could sit for an hour trying to figure out whether you want to lift your right hand or your left hand. You can go back and forth between them. But the final thought or intention that proves effective simply arises, right? It just, it, and, and you are not, you as, con as the conscious witness are not in a position to know why it won out over any other in that moment. And so it is too with, you know, your example, look, I can think of a carrot right now. Well, there's no place from which you as a, as a conscious witness of your experience picked carrot. Carrot simply appeared and you are in no position to know why you didn't pick a bicycle, right? You, you just didn't think of a bicycle. It's our identification with thought, our, feel, our not noticing thoughts as, as mere appearances in consciousness that makes us feel like an ego or, or a thinker uh, or, or the center, in this, in this kind of the center of, of narrative gravity in the middle of what is in fact just this open and inscrutable condition where everything simply appears all by itself. Yeah. Okay. Just to recap a, a couple of bits then. So if we think of a carrot, it's only after the event, we have another thought that goes back and thinks, oh, I chose <clears throat> that thought of the carrot when actually it was the carrot itself just popping up and then we claiming well, well, it later. Yeah, well, I, I would put it slightly differently. The feeling of thinking of a carrot when you don't recognize thoughts as appearances in consciousness, you don't, you're not seeing the thought before you feel identical to it. The feeling that you did it is what it's like to not notice a thought as a thought. It yeah. just it kind of sneaks up behind you and just feels like you, right? And, and it, which in itself shouldn't, should seem peculiar. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, how is, how could the voice in your head, the, you know, the voice of your mind, how could a, you know, these stray pieces of language or the, or images be what you are? I mean, how, how could that, how could you mistake that for yourself? You know, I'm, I'm talking now and you're, I mean, just notice how this competes. I'm now talking to, to our audience. Notice how this, this competes for your attention. You know, I, you're trying to listen to what I'm saying, but you're, I am competing with a voice in your head, which is, which is very likely distracting you moment by moment because, you know, I'm talking, but then, but you're also talking to yourself saying things like, well, what's he, what's he talking? Get to the point, man. What's he talking? And, and that feels like you, but how is it? How could that feel like you? I mean, it really is. And this kind of automaticity 
of, of, of language production. And it's, um, if you want to, if you notice it as it is, it's just, it, it's rather like my voice in that it just appears and then disappears and you can't hold on to it for, you know, each thought comes and goes and you can't hold on to it for a moment longer than it persists on its own. It is there kind of like sounds in a way, yet uninspected, it feels like me. Uh, and it feels like a condition of control of experience. Like I'm, I'm in charge here. I'm pulling the levers and working the gears of my own experience. And yet you, the truth is no one knows what they will think next, you know, and you can make this as, as constrained as you want, and you still don't know what you'll think next. And so I mean, I can give you the task of, of just, just remember something, just remember anything from your life, any moment from the past, just summon a memory. Now, if you do that, to pay, do, do that a few times and pay attention to what that's like. And in what sense are you actually responsible? You, the, the one who, you know, receives the memory are you in what sense are you responsible for the memory that surfaces right I, I i ask you to go fishing for memories and you throw the line out and you have no idea what you'll get back yeah yeah it's not like looking through a cd rack and picking one out uh, individually and you so you talked about consciousness in terms of it being open aware space and Another way to describe it could just be the simple fact of being aware. And <clears throat> as you pointed out, everything arises in our awareness. So the thoughts we think we think, thoughts arise in consciousness, but also sensations arise in consciousness. My bottom on the seat right now, and perceptions arise in consciousness. So what I can see and smell and taste and everything like that, feelings and emotions. So everything arises in consciousness and they all have objective qualities and they come and go, but the awareness itself, it doesn't come and go, but we're so, we're so used to putting our attention on the contents of consciousness, the objects of consciousness, whether that be thoughts or what we see or whatever, any of those things, that it's so easy to overlook that sort of simple fact of being aware and, and consciousness. And, and what comes to mind now for me really is the story of you when you were in Colorado when you were like 18 or 19 and spent three days on your own you know in solitude and and basically tormenting yourselves with imaginings about about objects and that and that seemed to be a very formative thing but yeah could you just speak about how easy it is to overlook this awareness that is fundamental really to everything that we experience and what the significance of that is yeah. So yeah. So the experience you referred to, I was actually I was sixteen, and on this um, this wilderness course called Outward Bound, which um, I'm pretty sure still exists in the U.S. I don't know if they're in the U.K. or anywhere else, but um, and it was a, it was a 23 day backpacking trip in Colorado, which culminates with something they called the Solo, where you would you would fast uh, for three days in solitude. Right, so you, you you just had your tent and your journal and and nothing else. I mean, no books and no distractions, and you, you you couldn't go off exploring. You just had to stay put. In this case, we were by this uh, beautiful alpine lake. We we're up at like eleven thousand feet, 
and just, just in you know objectively one of the most beautiful corners of the world. And you know I was healthy. I was I, w- I had just spent you know, eighteen days trekking through the mountains of Colorado, and I certainly deserved a rest. And you know it may sound like a hardship to fast and you know, drink nothing for uh, but, but water for three days. You know that's physically speaking that that's not such a difficult thing to do. So this was a circumstance where many things could have happened for me. I could have discovered my deep love of nature. I mean, I'm looking up at the sky at night and, and seeing more stars than than I ever have in my life. And, you know, it could have been a circumstance of just pure pleasure, and yet I was absolutely miserable. You know, I was as one being tortured by his own mind. You know, deeply lonely, missing everyone in my life, uh, making lists of the foods I planned to eat when I got back to civilization, uh, just plunged into a state of of total unhappiness, uh, just minute by minute, hour by hour, for three solid days, and I had absolutely no sense that my own mind was the problem. And then I came off the solo, and everyone else on this trip was considerably older than I was. I mean, most of the people were kind of in their mid-20s. And this experience for them landed totally differently. I mean, I'm sure some of them had been unhappy for, for points, you know, for periods of time, but many of them had had a transformative experience and were just radiantly happy. And when, so when I saw that, I mean, that was the first inkling I had, that, okay, wait a minute, maybe there's something I don't understand about what's possible here and about what is just what I should expect of myself and my life and my my own mind, and I mean, that was that was a seed that didn't really germinate for a, a few more years. That was a, a necessary first glimpse of my own capacity to be miserable. And most of us manage to arrange our lives so that we don't have to notice that, mm. right? I mean, now in the age of the smartphone, most of us never experience boredom. I mean, I don't know the last time I've ever been in a situation where I could possibly come up against my own capacity for boredom because of the, you know the tech, the technological prosthesis I have now with this with this uh, smartphone or an iPad always available. I mean, and the sum total of all of human knowledge and increasingly all of human entertainment available with almost no friction. So it used to be that boredom could have been a goad to to self-inquiry for for you know, for virtually every generation of of humanity prior to this one that was true. I mean there was it was always a moment where you know you're sitting in the the waiting room of your you know your dentist and confronted with a stack of of terrible magazines and just forced into the company of your own thoughts for 20 minutes. And many of us in those moments were forced to recognize, okay, there's, there's, yeah, it's something peculiar about feeling this destabilized by not being, not having one's attention diverted by some entertainment, right? Like, how is it that I, I, I'm not content to merely sit in the company of my thoughts 
for 20 minutes. And that's, but that's an experience that almost no one has anymore. And it's uh, so, but when, when it's, when it's forced on you for one reason or another, as it was for me in, in the mountains when I was 16 and you have days to confront it, you know, unless you have a, a framework in which to think about that as a real opportunity to deepen your awareness of, of profound uh, truths about the nature of your own mind, uh, which is to say, unless you're a, a contemplative of some kind or poised to be one, it's very common to find that, that experience just lacerating. And it's why you know, solitary confinement is considered a torture inside a prison. I mean, this is just an amazing fact about the human mind. We're, we're, we're so deeply social that most of us would prefer to live in the company of murderers and rapists than to live alone in a box by ourselves because boredom and solitude and monotony are, are that terrifying. Uh, and what's terrifying there is what an untrained mind is like in, in those conditions. Uh, because a trained mind in those conditions can just be a, produce a circumstance of bliss. You know, I mean, that, this is, this is the condition that real contemplatives have sought out for thousands of years. You know, I, one of my teachers spent 20 years in a cave. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's possible to, to completely flip the script there and to find solitude, a, a, a wellspring of, of, uh, profound engagement with the, the the nature of reality at least first person reality so lots of people aren't going to have that much time on their hands to go and sit in a cave and and uh, i mean earlier you talked about understanding that we are not our thoughts and being able to see that the ego is an illusion but it takes time to to establish into that but when you're meditating for example and you notice oh I'm thinking about, you mentioned, you know, what was on TV or whatever it may be, my marriage, whatever. At that moment, when you disidentify with the thought, <clears throat> just perhaps in that split second or even shorter time than that, between that thought ending and another one coming up, at that, well, it's not really a moment, is it, mm. in time, but that's when you're dropping into consciousness. So even though perhaps you know, getting stabilized in that might take a long time. Actually, this is an experience, albeit one that is easy to overlook, that, that everyone has the experience of being aware and not lost in thought. We do drop into that fairly regularly, isn't it? Well, it's an interesting question. So everyone has the experience of consciousness because that is the only that that is synonymous with experience itself. So what I mean by consciousness is just the fact that it's like something to be what you are. You are, as a matter of experience, are consciousness uh, and its contents, right? I mean, and and this this extends to everything you can notice: seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, your emotions, you know, various senses that you're not you know, you, you don't tend to think about, like proprioception. I mean, anything anything that has a a signature of change in your sense of, of you know, what, what you are in the world. Everything that defines the qualitative character of what it's like to be you in this moment, that's what I mean by consciousness. And the question is, 
whether there's a there is a self in the middle of that or not right now it it seems like there is one it, you know most people feel like it's me over here behind my face looking into my experience looking into my visual field feeling down in my body from as though from a place up in the head uh, and meditation is is a technique of ultimately of inspecting that that starting point closely enough so that you see it suddenly very differently and consciousness resolves itself into this this single groundless open and and intrinsically free condition and what is it free of it's well it's free of this feeling of i or me in the middle but it's also free of of feeling entangled by specific thoughts and emotions that are arising in each moment. So you can recognize, you know, a, a thought that would otherwise capture you completely and make you feel miserable. You know, your thought of that embarrassing thing you said mm. at the, the party last night that you, fuck, you wish you hadn't said that, right? God, how, how, what kind of idiot are you that you would say such a thing? And did you see the look on her face when you said, and all of that's, all of those are thoughts, right? And they're completely empty of implication until you identify with them. And recognizing them as a, just this bad movie that is playing again and again and again uh, to an, you know, an audience of one or presu you know, presumably an audience of one, you can step back and be genuinely free of what you would otherwise be totally subsumed by, which is this cascade of negative emotion that's being kindled in every moment as you identify with each crappy thought that comes careening into, into your conscious mind. Uh, so that ability to fundamentally step out of that condition of identification with thought and emotion and recognize the free and open context in which any thoughts or emotions are, are appearing, that's what meditation ultimately is. And it, it does become a kind of superpower but as you say, people do experience this in miniature, even when they're not, you know, when, they, when they've never taken an interest in meditation and, they, and they've never even heard of the concept. Yeah, I think people are continually losing their sense of self and not recognizing it. I mean, you can get lost in your work or you can get distracted by a movie. You can get so into the movie that you forget you're watching a movie, right? You're just, you, you, you know, the, the, the moments where movies really work for us are, are moments where we have forgotten that we're sitting in a darkened room looking at light on the wall and we're completely fixated on what's happening on the screen. But it is different to have a flow experience, say, uh, where, you know, you're surfing and, you know, there's these moments where it's, it's really going well and you've caught, you know, the perfect wave where you just feel like it's just you and the universe and the, and the boundary between you and the world or you and the wave isn't even so clear, right? It's just, you're not doing it anymore. You're no longer looking over your own shoulder. You're really just having a unified experience of so-called flow. Yeah, yeah, I've spoken uh, about this, you know, where uh, Johnny Wilkinson, when he kicked the winning drop goal with a very famous moment here in England mm -hmm. through to... Frankie Dettori. I mean, I've got lots of anecdotal uh, evidence of people right. coming on here talking about that, the flow, and and the research suggests that obviously you get that distortion of time and the 
the loss of that sense of being me. So in terms of how you describe consciousness, and I've heard you say this before as, you know, something that it's like to be something. And for me, an almost simpler way of putting it that I understand, that I get is just the simple fact of being aware. Now, I know, for example, that you spoke to Adyashanti as well, and he speaks about the more that you put your attention on something, the more it it grows into the foreground of experience. And so he talks about being increasingly aware of awareness, being aware of being aware. And that's something I think that that for me has has been quite powerful in that sometimes I'll just, it would just be like, oh, wow, you know, there's awareness fundamental to everything objective that I experience. And I've meditated pretty consistently. I mean, nowhere near like you. And But as well, there's, for example, acceptance and commitment um, therapy. And I quite like one of their techniques, which is just, you know, when you notice you're lost in thought, just to go do a diffusion technique, which might just be something like, oh, I'm aware of the thought that X, you know, I'm going to get sacked or whatever it may be. And then you sort of uh, drop back into awareness. And so we have, and I know you you speak about we've got the, uh, the the experiencing self and then let's say the remembering self. So the, the self that exists in time, future and mm. past, and then the experiencing self, which is that part of you or the listener that can hear my voice now. And the more we identify with the storied part of us, so the, that part that you mentioned that's cursing their luck for a social faux pas at the party last night, um, the more we I identify with that which is just born of thought that equates a lot with suffering there's that famous saying isn't there you know um, that pain is inevitable but suffering is optional so we may stub mm-hmm. our toe but it's the narrative that we form around that oh that shouldn't have happened goodness i'm not going to be able to play football tomorrow whatever it may be and that's where the suffering comes in so to what degree do you agree with this the more that we're able to identify with that part of us that is simply aware in which the thoughts and the stories come and go as they will. And and there's nothing we can, you know, that that's just going to happen. That's part of being human. But the more that we can identify with that part of us that is aware, the less likely we are to suffer. Yeah. I I wouldn't put it in terms of identifying with awareness because in the end, identification with anything is the obstacle to recognizing the intrinsic freedom of awareness or consciousness. I'm using those terms interchangeably. So you wouldn't say it is who, you know, like us at our core level. Yeah. I mean, it's not, in one sense, you could say that, but it's, that suggests a kind of identification with the, the witness as, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to anything else, which is itself. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Alpha kind of, uh, you know, uninspected thought yeah. or, or concept, right. right? So ultimately, the concept that really captures this best, although it really does require a fair amount of explanation in, in translation uh, is the is the Buddhist concept of emptiness. Hmm. Now, you know, emptiness doesn't sound very good to the, the ear in English. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like, a, you know, why would I want to discover the intrinsic emptiness of everything? That's, that sounds depressing. That sounds like it, it robs life of meaning. It certainly doesn't sound like a basis for joy, much less bliss. But emptiness, when you get, when you, you know, get into what is the details of what is meant by that within Buddhism, um, it does capture this this non-identification piece better than other traditionally mystical framings. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not, there's a difference between centerlessness or groundlessness and oneness, right? It, you know, if, you, if you're aiming for oneness, um, that becomes a kind of <clears throat> reification of what's left when you're no longer identified with thought. It's a kind of a thought-based way of of grabbing everything, and it's. Uh, I just I think it is misleading. I mean, it can be you know sty- It could be a, stylistically just a, a matter of taste in certain in certain cases how one describes this, whether one emphasizes the what it isn't as opposed to what it is. But in terms of what it what it ultimately is, from my point of view, it's not identifying with anything. Yeah. Right. It's just what's left when you're no longer grasping at experience or resisting, you know, grasping at what's pleasant or resisting what's unpleasant or not noticing what is what is neutral. Yeah. Right? It's just just open, centerless clarity that allows anything in principle to appear. You're not blocking half of your experience. You're not saying, I don't want to think that, I don't want to feel that. It's not a kind of strategy of, of resistance. In fact, you're willing to feel anything, yeah, yeah. right? And feel it totally. I mean, and so, so, it, so it's not mine. If you're trying to change your experience, you know, if you're, if you feel anxious and then you start being mindful of anxiety, you just pay cl- close attention to the feeling of anxiety and you, you, you notice your thoughts that are making you anxious and you let go of those and you come back to the feeling, the raw feeling of just the physiology of, of being adrenalized in that way. The only way to actually be mindful of anxiety in this case is to truly accept it and, and to be deeply willing to feel it, I mean, to, to feel it with with genuine 
openness and curiosity and compassion, but it can't be a strategy to get rid of it, no. right? So, and, and that's that's the trap that people immediately fall into. It's like they're being mindful so that the anxiety will go away. Yeah. Done in that way, it's just a, a practice of, of self-deception. So the, the first insight with mindfulness is to be willing to feel anxiety and to just to be willing to burn up with it. I mean, just, just let, let yourself become incandescently anxious and recognize that, that awareness itself never truly takes the form of anxiety. It's a, you know, that, that which is aware of anxiety is precisely the same thing that's aware of joy or any other emotion. Mm. And you can keep dropping back into that merely witnessing frame of mind that allows everything to just arise and change and pass away. And then, then if you if you can do that and you actually get out of the thoughts about you know why you should feel anxious, you'll notice that anxiety has a very short half-life, and so does anger and any other negative emotion. And they dissipate very, very quickly. And so, you know, again, that's a, that's a knot you have to keep untying. That's so that's still the paradox. But that's just, just to jump in quick, Sam, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that is the paradox, isn't it? That you spoke about emptiness and not so no identification there. But that emptiness, you know, it's still an aware emptiness, isn't it? But it, should, but it can't say yes that... or no to anything. That's its nature, isn't it? It, it can't say... I like and don't like this experience. So therefore, like saying yes to any experience, anxiety, fear, whatever it may be, not as a way to get rid of it, but but mm. that is the very nature of it, is is accepting everything. Yeah. But if you're still left feeling like the meditator or feeling like the one who's doing that, there's An something illusion. left uninspected here. And that is that that does come back to this this ground truth that consciousness itself you know that that which is aware of anything you can be aware of doesn't feel like me no. it doesn't feel like an and whatever feels like me is something that is an appearance yeah. in consciousness yeah well it's not personal a lot of people talk about the difference between like personal awareness and and impersonal awareness as well um but before i mean i did want to talk to you a bit about suffering in particular because i think mm -hmm. you know a lot of people do suffer unnecessarily and then that is born of the stories that they tell themselves often about themselves, perhaps born of misperceptions, you know, when they were kids or whatever it may be, or, you know, stories about what's happened, like you said, at the party last night, that shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said that. Or so for people who, as so many of us are want to do, who, who torment ourselves with the stories and the thoughts and identifying with them beyond simply developing a you know a solid meditation practice what would you say to someone who is, who is prone to tormenting themselves in that way as so many are the first thing to say is that this is almost universally true 99.99% of us are suffering unnecessarily a lot of the time, and this is always a story of being identified with thoughts that are making us unhappy. And this is pointless suffering. It's not, I'm not to say I'm not saying that all pain is unnecessary or avoidable, and even all suffering is avoidable. But so much of it is obviously not equipping us to do anything better. In fact, it's it's degrading our capacity to do anything useful. 
So I mean, to take a concrete example, you know, you, you could get a um, a scary medical diagnosis. Say, right? you know, you know, one doctor says he doesn't like what uh, you know we, we see on this X-ray, and uh, thinks it might be cancer, and it's you know time to get a biopsy. And so now you're worried about now you suddenly you know the day before you were not thinking that cancer was something you had to worry about anytime soon, if ever. Uh, but now you are a right on the cusp of of a, uh, a horrible adventure in medicine, or so it seems. Uh, you you know a, a cancer di- diagnosis is you know, very likely in the offing, right? And now you're terrifically worried by all that, and. You've got your, you know, biopsy appointment coming in in four days, right? So what's what's life going to be like in your brain for the next four days? Uh, how much how much of your worrying is useful at this point? I mean, you've you've made the appointment for four days from now. What's left to think about? Is there is there anything left to think about at this point? And and so much of our lives are lived in the, in these interim conditions where there's something that that worries us and yet where there's no longer anything left to think about because we have we have decided to take the the next action that is relevant to solving our problem in this case you've scheduled the medical procedure four days hence um, you know this could be you know to take it out of the medical zone for a second I mean this could be you know something, some presentation you have to make, you know, a week from now that you're very nervous about, right? And you're you've prepared for it, you know, and you're you're preparing for it. You've decided to prepare for it. You will prepare for it, but in addition to preparing, you're just worried about it, right? Ninety nine percent of our thinking about the future is totally pointless. It's not actually allowing us to decide to do anything differently. We're not correcting course in any mean, meaningful way. We're just immiserating ourselves by thinking, again, without knowing that we're thinking. I mean, you might have an abstract idea that you're thinking. You might be able to say, of course, I know I'm thinking when asked. But moment by moment, there you are being dragged onto a dreamscape of suffering that is completely unnecessary. It really is analogous to being asleep and dreaming and not knowing that you're dreaming. And... So the, whether you call it meditation or not, it's important to acknowledge that most of our thinking about our lives is not the same as the actual character of the experiences we have when those moments we're thinking about actually come to be real in the present, right? So your thought about your biopsy in four days isn't your biopsy. In four days, right? It's a it's a thought that's arising now. I mean, when when your biopsy finally arrives, that experience will be what it will be, right? And and it'll it'll be however long it'll be, and you'll it'll be uh, however painful it'll be. But all of your thinking about it up until it actually happens serves very likely no other purpose than to make you unhappy until it happens. And we go from one moment like that in our lives, good and bad. I and mean, we have, you know, the goals we want to reach and the, the vacations we want to take. And, you know, all of these, we have all of these landmarks on the apparent you know, horizon, but the experience of reaching them 
is almost uniformly the experience of of arriving at a kind of mirage where it's like whatever the character of the experience, good or bad, it recedes and we find ourselves incapable of truly making contact with it because we're the we have the kind of minds that are always over, looking over the shoulder of the present moment at the next thing that's coming, you know, a, a moment later, a minute later, an hour later, or next year, right? We have, we're, just, we're constantly leaning into the future and very rarely making, you know, full collision contact with the present. And again, we have these moments of flow or these moments of, you know, peak experience, but we misattribute the causality there to the the conditions in the world that conspired to make those moments unavoidable right so again if you're if you're somebody for whom surfing is your gateway to flow well then you'll think that the only way to have this flow experience is to get up at the crack of dawn and and get your wetsuit on and get out into the water and catch the right wave and if there are no great waves that day, you'll be disappointed, right? But what meditation teaches you is that you can have this experience on demand simply by paying closer attention to the nature of any experience, good or bad. Yeah. So the hint of that then is, is you know, flow is there the whole time, hidden in plain sight. It's just a, a mm -hmm. question of whether or not we can get to it. I mean, that's pretty clumsy language, but if you get what I mean. Um, I spoke a little earlier about identifying with awareness, taking the stand, if you like, as awareness, as opposed to <clears throat> the story. So the story of me, which is a, a big part of the ego, the, you know, our history, uh, our likes and dislikes, our, um, you know, whether we think we're great or, you know, unlovable, whatever it may be. Um, I've heard you talk about, it's very easy, actually, to rewrite that story to come up with a new one. But, you know, I, I was thinking what about really holding any story really loosely because mm. I, I for example one day I might think that I'm a, a look after a, a six-year-old really well and then an, the next day I might be like goodness I'm not that good at this actually at all you know the, the same situation or roughly the same situation can depending on our mood and various other factors can provoke a completely different interpretation so just to go off on a bit of a tangent then, obviously identity is such a big thing right now. And, and you know, something I admire, I think, about you is is what you talk about in terms of identity politics. And let's say if you're right wing in America, you're likely to, you know, support gun, you know, you, you, you're pro guns, put it mm. simply, you're pro life. It's very common that you will fall in line with the beliefs associated with the right way of looking at the world and same on the left. And so as someone who doesn't do that, who does tend to look at the each case on a case by case basis, which to me is the, the sane approach to anything. What's your take on the fact that identity right now is such a big thing in various forms? You know, and I, I actually started my whole podcast series on, on this, you know, about the tribalism in football in this in this country. But then obviously, mm -hmm. we've had Brexit, you've had you know, I know things are crazy in terms of Republicans and, and Democrats, and it's so heightened right now. What's your take on identity, just generally speaking, and how, how desperate people are to have one, firstly? And do you think this is the last flourish of, of heightened identity politics and all that kind of stuff? Or is it a trend that's only going to continue? And, and obviously, this is following on from the, the self chat mm -hmm. that we're talking about, because it is related, right? 
Yeah, now all of this is, all of these things are related. There are, there are several threads here that are worth distinguishing. I mean, there is, it's undeniable that stories and concepts have real power and that you can, you really can play on both levels as a, as someone who's living a, a more and more, a more and more examined life, right? So, you know, the, like the remedy for any specific problem could be mindfulness. I mean, and, and mindfulness does go deep enough so that, you know, I would say that, yes, you can get, you can find that you're free no matter what is happening if you just pay sufficient attention, not, you know, ultimately non-conceptual attention to the nature of consciousness. But that freedom isn't the same thing as having some new capacity that you actually wanted to have, right? That would allow you to function differently in the world. So if, if you don't know how to ride a bicycle or hit a golf ball before you become a Buddha, well, you, you won't know how to do those things after you become a Buddha, right? I mean, you might not care, but, you know, you still are, you know, it's, it's, it's not like having a profound insight into emptiness is going to make you great at any specific thing that, you know, it might not be nice to be great at. So, you know, if there are things you actually want to do and change about yourself or your life, you know, there's no substitute for actually getting the, the conceptual tools in hand to do those things. And, and some of that could be a matter of telling yourself a better story, right? And thinking of yourself in different ways and noticing kind of or and in in a, in a way that's not esoteric at all uh getting some better coaching from outside and from inside to perform differently and some of this relates to the, the kind of the stage at life uh, in life one is so you know much of what i would demand of myself or or consider normative in myself now is not what i would recommend to one of my daughters, you know, my daughters are 12 and seven. And, you know, in the context of, of who they are now, you know, I would, I, I, I regularly encourage them to see themselves in ways that I'd no longer see myself and, and wouldn't think it would be optimal for me to, to see myself in those ways. So, you know, I love it when one of my daughters feels proud to have accomplished something that is part of their, you know, the the toolkit uh, of uh, you know increasing competence and you know self actualization that they need to acquire at this yeah. point in life, mm-hmm. but in in my life now you know it, it, pride has absolutely no application to anything I'm doing. It just shows up as pure delusion for me to feel proud about anything. Virtually never happens. And I don't miss it at all. I mean, it's a it's a tiny emotion. It's just the most boring thing in the world to compare yourself favorably to somebody else. That's um, the problem I have with self esteem. Just to jump in there quickly, you know, yeah. you know, I, I think self esteem. You have it's about comparing. It's ranking, isn't it? And it comes back to that the story you have about yourself, rather than say, for example, self acceptance, which I I quite like in terms of the emptiness and the awareness. Anyway, mm. sorry to interrupt, Sam. Carry on. Yeah. I mean, it's a close cousin of something that you do want, which is you want to feel competent. Yes. You want to be able to do what you want to do. You don't want to feel perpetually frustrated or stifled or self-sabotaging or just cycling around 
you know, some condition of inaction because you just can't figure out how to get started or how to yeah. reach any of your goals. I mean, all, all of that, there's a, there's a type of unhappiness that gets you know, accreted around those various sticking points to which self-esteem or self-actualization or self-confidence or pride or you know, all of that can seem like the, the antidote. At, at bottom, the antidote is, is just very simple. You just, there, there are things each of us needs to learn in order to accomplish specific things in life. But you know, ultimately, the better you get at anything, the less and less it makes any sense at all to feel proud or embarrassed or humiliated or any or yeah. any of the, 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 the oppositely valenced emotions. It's just there's just a continuous string of successes and failures and refinements and course corrections. Yeah. And at bottom no one is doing it, right? It's like, like it really is mysterious how you go from from zero to mastery of anything. And at no point along the way can you really own the process. And and especially at the level of mastery, I mean, mastery is associated with less and less awareness yeah. of how you're doing anything. It comes back to like flow, for example. You know, when yeah. someone is really exceptionally good at something, yeah, it's it's automatic and they're, they're really out of the way and just just uh, letting it happen. Yeah. I mean, that, that the, the whole point of practice, the whole point of of learning all of the distinctions you need to learn in order to get truly good at something is ultimately to learn it so well that you have no idea how you do anything. Mm. You just do it. I just wanted to ask you um, about identity then uh, for a bit of clarity. Oh, you yeah, know... Sorry, I, com I completely missed your identity <laughs> politics overture. Yeah. That, that's all right. Uh, that's okay. Yeah. But but just to come back to it, you know, what what do you make of how tightly people are clinging to identity and right. um, and what, so what, 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 what's your answer to it? What, what's your take on, yeah. on all of that stuff? Well, well, this is what I meant. So in starting out and talking about the, the, the appropriateness of various things at different stages in life. Yes. So it's immature. You know, is that what you're saying? Yeah. It is a kind of regression to the childhood of our species or the childhood of yeah. culture. And, and in, in that sense, it's not good at all as a basis for politics. And it, it's so obviously not good as a, as a durable basis for politics because it's this emphasis on identity is explicitly closing the door to real compromise, real communication, a real mutually benefiting open-ended collaboration between the various subgroups. Right, I'm like if, if if you can't possibly understand me and my precious experience because you haven't shared my precious experience, well then there's not much to talk about, right? It's like it, it's not you know you, you you if you if you because of who you are because of your religion or you're the color of your skin or the or the you know, your biological sex or whatever yeah. whatever you know football team. superficial quality <laughs> you know I'm going to anchor you to. If you can't, uh, if you have no standing to judge the merits of my ideas, because my ideas issue from this private place of epistemological gravitas, my own privileged experience, that applies to a few things in life, like you know, journal entries and you know whether I love my spouse or I mean, I mean like you, it's not you for you to judge that, but 
when we're talking about politics and about trying to, which is requires that we converge on common Consensus, judgments right. about what's real in the world and and what what is worth doing. Um, it's a disaster. I mean, it's just it's just the absolute antithesis of what you want running on the hard drive in order to have a a sane conversation about anything that relates to the common good. And I mean, for it, the, the place where it. It relates to to meditation and everything else we've been talking about very directly. Is you know, I've been saying, you know, here that you don't have to identify with your own thoughts, right? You don't have to identify with your own with with, with the face you see in the mirror each day. And in fact, real insight into the nature of your mind and you know, real wisdom and real compassion ultimately will require. That you don't identify with those things. What will require that you that you penetrate your own experience closely enough so that you recognize that identification with the face you see in the mirror is in the end impossible. Well, how much less need you identify with random strangers out there who just happen to share some superficial characteristic with the face you see in the mirror? I mean, how much if I don't have to identify with my own body in the end, why would I have to identify with being a white ma man, right? And be unable to identify with with uh, you know some you know someone else's uh, background that I don't share, or un unable to fuse my my values and my cognitive horizons with people from another subgroup? It's just a crazy uh, and again childish starting point. Uh, in the end, and it's uh, it should be clear to us that we want to get to a world where the superficial differences between people, like skin color, uh, to take race as as perhaps the most charged variable here, uh, are no more important politically or morally than differences in hair color, say, or eye color. Right? I mean, no one cares about differences in hair color or eye color. And there's no one who's disposed to look to see if Google or Apple or British Airways or any other corporation has hired enough green-eyed people, right? Or whether the, the representation of blonde-haired people in those organizations perfectly mirrors the representation of blonde-haired people in wider society, right? And and upon discovering that, that that it doesn't, let's say we discover that Apple has only you know seventeen percent blonde-haired people, and it and you know whereas you know twenty-one percent of people are in fact blonde, so that you know four percent differential. I'm just making these percentages up. I don't know what the the real percentages are, uh, but any difference there must suggest a a an animus against blondes, right? This this is the the consequences of bigotry, right? You know, you would you would have to be insane to think such a thing now, right? At, at any point about hair color, and yet it is routine to imagine this is true with respect to race and gender and religion and and many other things to which you know people are are um, identified. Um, and it's not it's obviously it's, it's not a mystery as to how we got here. I mean, we do you know we we are trailing a, a an impressive legacy of racism and sexism in particular in in you know every society 
but to not to not to acknowledge how much progress we've made on those fronts, uh, you know, is destabilizing and dishonest and ultimately obscene. Uh, so we have made tremendous progress, and I, and I think continued progress. You know, there's certainly more to make, but continued progress will be a matter of caring less and less about those differences between people. It can't be a matter of caring more and more about them. It's quite exciting, I think, to see, for example, you know, your app, which is talking very openly and clearly about the illusion of the ego. And just this is becoming so much more of a common topic. I was really proud to get it. I shouldn't say proud, but I, I was to get it, um, you know, talk about non-duality on, on the BBC, which was, uh, I think, a bit of a first. And, um, mm, you know, right. these kind of conversations are happening more and more and more. And it would be nice, I think, to think that if th that trend continued, then this need to cling to identity in whatever form m might loosen, you know. And it's more like, yes, we all have roles to play, but we can we can hold them uh, a bit more loosely than perhaps we are now. And, you know, I always just come back to football in this country, which is, you know, very tribal and very charged. You know, I always remember uh, being on a high street and um, trying to find Tottenham fans. So Tottenham and Arsenal, they mm -hmm. can't stand each other. I'm not sure if you know of the North London rivalry. And, you know, and I spoke to a guy and his son and, and he just started effing and blinding about Arsenal fans in general and it was to me it was you know the definition of, of insanity anyway listen I'm, I'm slightly conscious that we haven't got a lot of time left Sam so I want to ask you something which is around you know how you've grown developed your opinions you know perhaps they I wonder to what degree they have changed or not because so your book waking up what well, it came out what was that 2014 did it come out mm -hmm. yeah right so it came yeah. out 2014 so I'm interested to what degree you've been influenced by conversations you have had for example with Adyashanti or mm -hmm. someone like Rupert Spira as well both of which may I say I've I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed because Adyashanti if someone asked him well, I've heard someone ask him, do you think the awareness in in him is the same as it is in you and I? He would say, he says, yes, he believes the awareness is the same. It's the same impersonal awareness. Rupert Spira, as you know, believes that it is primary, let's say, to everything, not just mm. our thoughts and everything like that. It's, it's, it's to even the buildings I see uh, out of my window right now, consciousness is primary to that, for example. Now, in your book, um, Waking Up, on page 53, it says, whatever the ultimate relationship between consciousness and matter, almost everyone will agree that at some point in the development of complex organisms like ourselves, consciousness seems to emerge. You know, it seems mm. sin even since then in 2014, I would assert that, that, that there has been a, a rise in the number of people or perhaps the, the, the number of conversations around um, suggesting that actually, no, let, let's go back to, you know, the Max Planck view of things that perhaps consciousness is fundamental and, and actually matter, all matter seems to arise in consciousness and awareness. Uh, you know, and people like Adyashanti and, and Rupert Spira, as far as I can see, uh, assert that. But now you have as well, someone like who I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with, Bernardo Castrup, who is you know, mm. a scientist of the very, very top order. And he, he, he says, yes, as far as he's concerned, and he's had things published in very highly esteemed scientific publications saying that no, 
everything is consciousness and it's just taking various forms. And I just wonder to what degree, perhaps, have you been influenced at all by these these conversations and, and this outlook? Or are you still steadfast in your view that it must be a, an emergent property of matter? Um, you know, I'm, I'm just taking a very conservative, actually agnostic position with respect to the status of consciousness yeah. uh, here. And it's, and I, what I, what I really want to d- distinguish, you know, across the board, not on just, not on just this topic, but uh, on anything I talk about are gradations of certainty. I mean, I want to be able to say the thing that is clearly true. And then there are things that are, are occupy a, a real gray area. And then there are things that are, are, not only is it clear we don't know one way or the other, but it's not even clear that we can know. And I just, I try to be very scrupulous around differentiating those, you know, those different zones. And so for instance, it is obvious to me that consciousness is the only thing we ever directly experience. I mean, yeah. this is almost tautological. I mean, it is experience itself. Yeah. Right? Um, and therefore, you know, one cannot say, as certain, you know, very esteemed scientists and philosophers have, uh, that consciousness might be an illusion. Right? Yeah. Consciousness is the one thing in this universe that cannot be an illusion. Yeah. Full stop. Right? There's, there is, in fact, nothing to debate here because if you, if there's any illusion present, if anything, if I could be completely confused about what reality is and where I am with respect to it. And I mean, this could all be a dream, right? Of course. Uh, or I could be a simulation on the hard drive of some alien supercomputer, or this is the matrix, you know, all of that's conceivable. Um, but to, the presence of illusion is just as much proof of the reality of consciousness as any real experience yeah. would be, right? So, so just in my world, you know, consciousness simply cannot be an illusion. But to move from that direct access to this kind of primacy of consciousness to make a further metaphysical claim about what that means in terms of neuroscience or in terms of physics, there are many steps there that we need not take and there are certain steps that we cannot take or that if taken badly put you in... In, into obviously fringe territory with respect to those to those specific sciences, right? So there are people who will say, "Well, no, this is this experience of the primacy of consciousness. This is just this is proves that the you know, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics was right all along, and you know consciousness is the necessary ingredient for the the collapse of the wave the wave function, and and uh, you know that that is that puts there there are people who think that, it, but those are not people who are influential in physics anymore and haven't been for about 75 years. Uh, and uh, there, you know, there are many, uh, virtually all of the great physicists of our own time will have, have very little patience for a mere you know, quasi-mystical reassertion of the significance of consciousness for quantum mechanics these days, right? Um, and so from my point of view, there's just no reason to do it, and and nothing, uh, nothing necessary from the, from the contemplative side. Nothing necessary is added if you pretend to know that consciousness 
was you know existed prior to the big bang say can i can and i so just I, hop I, in quickly sam yeah just, um, yeah you use the word agnostic, which I think is the the sensible position to take. Again, just looking at your book, so instead the birth of consciousness must be the result of organization. So it does sound to me like you have well, softened well, no, I, I don't, someone. I'm, I'm not no? actually saying – I don't think I'm saying that. I think if you go back and look, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what most people in neuroscience believe, right? But, 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 so, and, so, so, sorry, my question really was then about – because it's like, okay – People uh, assert that, for example, consciousness existed before the Big Bang, but at the same time, people are asserting that consciousness is an emergent property of brain, and there's no evidence for that either. So surely both of them must be treated exactly the same, no? No, no, not not quite, because so there's abundant evidence that what we call mind is an emergent property of, of information processing. Really? In in our case, in in biological brains, but you know, in in the case of AI, this this is happening in in a very different substrate. Um, I mean, we we you know we know what we mean by intelligence in various contexts, and other, and we know what we mean by other you know faculties of mind. We know what you know visual perception is. We know what what um, cognitive you know control of behavior is. We but know, we don't so know what these, consciousness these are, is, though. Well, so consciousness is its own piece, which is still genuinely mysterious in terms yeah, of exactly. how it relates yeah. to information processing. But everything else is an emergent property of organization. But isn't right? that so, all the content of consciousness rather than consciousness yeah. itself? So yeah. we're back so to I, no, the difference between the content and the context. Well, you know, so so I remain agnostic as to you know what consciousness is at bottom and perhaps it does perhaps it in the end it will seem like it is a a funda- another fundamental constituent of matter that goes all the way down to the you know to the atomic level or the subatomic level right so that maybe maybe something like panpsychism is true or you know flipping it in the other direction maybe something like idealism is true I mean, yeah is, which is that and that's is, the this, bernardo castrop take on things right, right. that the only yeah. consciousness exists and everything and it just takes the form of many things so so you are a bit more agnostic that that may be that's not definitively wrong well it's it's not it's not wrong but the 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 way people try to justify their their conviction for this view in many cases is obviously wrong Okay, but just as a, a real short one, then Sam. So, but you, ha- am I right in saying you have you are more agnostic now than you were in twenty fourteen or in twenty ten? No, I'm. I, or were you as memory agnostic serves? Then? I I could be I could be wrong, but I think I was just as agnostic then. I I, I think the thing that I was uh, saying, you know, for sometimes several pages at a stretch, is that you are certainly not going to embarrass yourself. In a scientific discussion now, if you think that virtually everything about us, including consciousness, is an emergent property of of information processing in the brain, and the only the and and you're on very firm ground saying that for everything that is, everything that relates to our functional capacities sure. as minds, but you really can't say that with any certainty. On the on the point of consciousness, and that that making that distinction was what I was was uh, wanting to make. But it, it, it's it's genuinely mysterious what 
the relationship is, and therefore it will be mysterious when we build AI that passes the Turing test, you know, so that when we find ourselves in relationship to robots and computers that are as intelligent and insightful as we are, if we haven't figured out how consciousness relates to information processing or, or if it relates to information processing, we won't know whether or not these machines are conscious and, and we may just lose sight of the problem. I mean, they, they certainly will seem conscious because we will build them that way. And it'll be, um, I mean, it'll be fascinating and also ethically very consequential not to know which end is up there because we won't know whether or not, you know, if we turn our you know, computers off at that point, whether we're committing a murder you know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 and it may seem like we're committing a murder yeah. in the end, and we won't know whether or not that's a pure illusion if we haven't figured out how consciousness is related to the physics of things. No. Well, listen, Sam, that's, a, I think, a good place to leave it. And um, like I said at the start, for someone who watched you and Hitch dish out mm. all sorts of slaps back in the day, you know, through to discovering that, that, that you had a spiritual side and being a devotee of your interviews, like I said, it's one of probably only two or three other pods, I would say, that are, that never leave my library and the app as well. So, you know, I just want to say, I just want to express gratitude. I think it's important to do that. So just thank you very much indeed for, for coming on and keep doing what you do, really. Oh, nice, nice. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for listening to this week's conversation with Sam Harris. I'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, or ideas. Get in touch either via social media at Simon Mundy or via my website, simonmundy.com. For me, reflecting on this episode, understanding that our propensity to identify with thoughts and get lost in them causes the majority of our psychological suffering is really significant. We can see thoughts and simply choose to let them go, not resist them, but accept them and refuse to cling to them. Also, Sam's tip about not resisting uncomfortable emotions like anxiety or fear is immensely valuable. If you fully accept them, albeit not as a way to get rid of them, then the emotions themselves actually have a really short half-life and you can quickly return to equilibrium. And finally, I thought it was interesting that Sam's view of reality and the nature of consciousness does appear to have shifted somewhat. Having said fairly conclusively that consciousness was an emergent property of the brain in his book, Waking Up, he admits to now being more agnostic. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed our chat. Let me know what you think. And a reminder about this week's newsletter, which you can sign up for on my website, simonmundy.com. In it, I share the best way I know to challenge the idea you have about who you are at a fundamental level amongst other nuggets. If you could please share this episode with anyone who might be interested in it, I would be very grateful. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.